Good evening. I don't know how well this stool is going to work. We'll see. Uh, it's so good to see you all here this evening. Um, I assume that if you're here tonight, you care at least on some level uh, about the topic we're going to be talking about, or uh, you're a student, you didn't have any other choice. So um, either way, I welcome you. I'm glad you're here. Um, the topic tonight uh, we're going to be discussing is life inside the womb uh, and subsequently abortion. And so um, it is a topic that I assume um, many of you feel very strongly about on one side or the other, um, and that you care a great deal about the topic. And some of you here tonight uh, may not know where you land. You may not know. Uh, you may not feel strongly. And so um, for all those reasons, I want to start with just laying some basic boundaries of where we're going, giving you an overview, and then I want to spend some time praying together before we get into it. So uh, first of all, as I mentioned on Sunday, um, we're going to do a Q&A at the end, so the first part is monologue, so you guys are going to be listening, but when we get to Q&A, just so you know, um, you're going to be texting in questions. I've got Brian Lamb up there uh, filtering questions. We're not going to do any political debate in here. We're not going to be talking about uh, defunding Planned Parenthood or uh, Planned Parenthood videos or any of that kind of stuff. We really want to look at the topic at hand from a biblical perspective so that as Christ followers, we know how to engage in the topic in the culture that we live in. So that's our, that's our objective tonight. Um, what I want to do is I want to invite you to pray with me tonight. This is a little bit different from what we do on Sunday morning. So um, I'm going to just give us a second to maybe close our eyes if that works for you. If you just want to bow your head, you could do that. Um, do whatever you need to do to just kind of clear out today. Clear out what you experienced today, your frustrations, your joys, your apprehensions about tonight. If you can, just take a second just to clear those things out. I'm going to ask you to pray for three things. First of all, I want to ask that you would pray uh, for me. That uh, what I share tonight would truly reflect the heart of God and would be um, free from uh, political spin or agenda or bias but simply that the truth of God would come from my mouth tonight in a way that we, we can all hear it and respond. Would you pray that? And then I'd like to ask for you to pray for at least one other person in the room tonight. Uh, whether you know their name or not, just whichever face comes to mind right now, would you pray for that person, that their hearts would be open, their ears would be um, attentive, and that God would speak to that person tonight. And I would say third and finally, would you pray for yourself? Would you ask God to give you ears to hear and a heart to receive uh, what he wants to speak to you tonight? Father, you know better than we do the weight and the gravity of what we are going to be discussing this evening. Father, you see it from an eternal perspective. You see it from the perspective of righteousness and justice. So, Father, we, we need to have your eyes to see tonight. We need to have your perspective. 
There's so many passionate movements on both sides of the aisle in our culture. So many things spinning out of context and hurtful, damaging things being said across the aisle. So, Father, tonight we want to submit our time, our mind, our hearts to you. And God, ask that you truly would speak as we approach this very delicate and weighty topic. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, good to see you guys. Um, glad you're here. We're going to get to the scriptures in really the second half of where we're going tonight. I want to start with um, a, um, just simply a biological and, and even a secular perspective on life inside the womb. We're going to look at just some data, some facts, some quotes, and then we're going to move to Scripture to see um, what life looks like from God's perspective. And so the two big questions we're asking tonight are these. Where does life begin? Okay, where does life begin? And then the second question, once we establish that, um, is this. Where does personhood begin? Because that's the two big questions that are dividing the debate right now. Now, the arguments you hear um, are a lot more than that. And so on... I'll just say this, on one side of the aisle from a pro-life standpoint, you hear uh, the drum beating for the value and the rights of a baby. And from a pro-choice perspective, you hear the drum beating for the rights and the value of the woman. So those are the primary uh, themes of both sides, but lots of arguments, lots of perspectives uh, being spun around. But the two questions we're after tonight are these, where does life begin and where does personhood begin? So... So let's start here with just a biological approach to where life begins, okay? And, uh, and so just a little biology lesson. Uh, man and woman come together. Uh, the woman brings the egg. The man brings the sperm. And so what happens is this. When the sperm fertilizes the egg, what then is produced is a single-cell organism or something we call a zygote. Been in biology, you've seen cross-sections of this or... Uh, animated versions of this, a single-cell organism that becomes a multi-cell organism and begins to grow, called a zygote in a biological sense. Some things that are true about a zygote from the moment that the egg is fertilized. Here's some things that are true. It has a metabolism. Uh, it grows. Uh, it reacts to stimuli. And it already possesses the DNA, which is the blueprint for a body, blood type, fingerprints, gender identity, and reproductive parts. And that's just a small list of the things that, that are represented there in the DNA, the chromosomes present. When the 23 chromosomes from the egg, from the woman, come together with the 23 chromosomes from the sperm, from the male, together 46 chromosomes, if my math serves me correctly, at that moment you have a zygote, and it is alive. It's living. Now, we're not calling it a person at this point. We're just calling it alive. It's, it has a metabolism. It's growing. It's responding to stimuli. So if you then track the growth through the different trimesters, let's just walk through some trimester data if we could uh, from there. So we're in the first trimester, right? At the moment of conception, the first trimester begins. <clears throat> and so this is the trimester where the majority of abortions take place. Uh, matter of fact, uh, 89 to 92% on average abortions take place in this time, this first trimester. So here's some things that are true about the trimester. At three weeks, so think about this little single cell organism, this zygote, beginning to reproduce and grow. 
with metabolism and it's moving, it's responding to stimuli. At three weeks, it has grown such that a heart begins to pump blood, has its own heartbeat. At six weeks, it has eyes, eyelids, a nose, and a mouth, and a tongue. Six to seven weeks, brain activity. At eight weeks, this zygote has now grown into an organism or something that is alive, and all the major organs are functioning. Brain is active, heart is pumping blood, kidneys are filtering fluids. At 10 weeks, it starts moving. It's all in the first trimester there, which is representative of a majority of the abortions that take place. 89 to 92% will take place in that time period at some point between conception and then 12 weeks. And those are the things that are true about this living organism within the first trimester. Now, the second trimester, um, the, the abortion rates fall off um, greatly to 7 or 8% within the second trimester. Uh, at 14 to 20 weeks, so here's some things that are true about this trimester. At 19 weeks, this living organism can undergo in, in utero surgery. They can perform surgery on this little living organism. At 20 weeks, uh, it can clasp its hands. It can suck its thumb. It can yawn, stretch, get the hiccups, cover its ears to loud noises, dream. What they've noticed now is with modern technology that at 20 weeks, um, these little living organisms actually have REM sleep, which means they're slipping into dream cycles, which, right, we dream mostly in pictures, so they don't have a lot to dream, right, but their little brains are beginning to slip into REM mode, and probably the dreams are audible only at best, but they're beginning already that sleep cycle of REM sleep, beginning to dream, feel pain, even smile. That's at 20 weeks. At 21 weeks, with a little bit of help, this little living organism can live outside of the womb, and at that point, I don't think anybody would argue that it is a person, right? Human being. Third trimester, uh, this is where 1% to 2% of abortions uh, occur. And so at this point, babies are born with little or no help living outside the womb. We've had babies within our own congregation born um, right at the end of second trimester and, and live without assistance and help. We've, um, I could just go through names of little babies that maybe you even know. But the point is this, ending the second at the end of the second trimester, this little living thing is able to, with a little or no help, live outside of the womb and be a little person. So the, the, the question isn't, is it alive or not? The question is, at what point does it become a person? Right? Something that we would attribute personhood to. A person that has value and rights. And so let's just take a, a glance at some uh, secular pro-choice voices on the topic of when the zygote becomes alive, a living thing, and even possibly a person or a human. So just, I have some quotes here we'll throw on the screen. Um, anything I cover tonight, <coughs> anything I cover tonight, if you want references to, um, you want a cited, work cited page on what we've got, I'll be glad to provide that for you. So let me just start with a guy named Peter Singer. He is a contemporary philosopher and a public abortion advocate. So he's a pro-choice guy. Uh, he wrote the book Practical Ethics, and here's a quote from Peter Singer. He says, it is possible to give human being, that's in quotes, so that the title human being, a precise meaning. We can use it as an equivalent to 
member of a species of the species Homo sapiens. Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and egg is a human being. So biologically, it's not anything else from this particular person's perspective. It is a human being. Um, genetically, it is not anything else but human. I have a, a, a quote here from uh, Dr. Keith Elmore. He is an uh, embryologist, a clinical autonomist, and he actually uh, is the author of one of the primary um, uh, textbooks used uh, in, in colleges, universities, in the study of embryology. And here's a quote from his book from a scientific perspective. He says, human development begins at fertilization. The process during which a male gamete or sperm unites with a female gamete or oocyte to form a single cell called a zygote. This highly specialized totipotent cell make mar- excuse me, marked the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. That's what he says was the beginning of you. The moment your father's sperm fertilized your mother's egg at that moment of zygote, you began. That's from a textbook author on a collegiate level. Uh, I want to look at a quote from uh, Faye Waddleton. Uh, I don't know much about Faye Waddleton other than that uh, she was actually um, the longest reigning president of Planned Parenthood and, uh, and wrote for uh, Miss Magazine. Here's a quote from an article she wrote for Miss Magazine on the topic of abortion. So she says this, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence, a signal that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus. Now, what's interesting is how uh, the landscape of the abortion conversation has drifted and changed since 1973 with the development of technology and a more clear understanding of science and what is happening on on an embryonic level, um, the old arguments were what? It was just a ball of mass, just a bunch of cells there together till way late in pregnancy. So that was the argument. But now we have 3D sonograms and we're seeing little babies clasp their hands and suck their thumbs and hiccup and all these little movements and things. And so we're we're realizing that that argument doesn't stand anymore. And so we're beginning to see even from a secular perspective, scientists, biologists, even from the pro-choice world, that nobody is really arguing anymore that it's not alive, and there are even not very many people arguing that it's not a little person on some level, a human being. Now, they stop at attributing to the embryo personhood by way of rights and value, but they aren't arguing that it's not a human being genetically and it's not alive. That argument has ceased to exist. Uh, Ann Ferretti, the chief executive of the largest independent abortion provider in the UK, uh, said this in a debate in 2008. We can accept that an embryo is a living thing in the fact that it has a beating heart, that it has its own genetic system within it. It's clearly human in the sense that it's not a gerbil, and we can recognize that it is human life. A couple more quotes I want to read here. 
from uh, Naomi Wolf, if you keep up with the debate, this is actually a prominent figure. She's a feminist and a pro-choice movement leader. Um, wrote an, uh, some, some really eye-opening things in an article a few years ago, and I just pulled a, few, a, a quote from the article. And here's some things that she said. Really, she's, and, and here's the thing, she's challenging the pro-choice world in the arguments that they're making. And she says this, Clinging to a rhetoric about abortion in which there is no life and no death, we entangle our beliefs in a series of self-delusions, fibs, and evasions. And we risk becoming precisely what our critics charge us with being, callous, selfish, and casually destructive men and women who share a cheapened view of human life. So she's challenging pro-choice people. This is a pro-choice leader challenging pro-choice people. And she goes on to say, we need to contextualize the fight to defend abortion rights within a moral framework that admits that the death of a fetus is a real death. And so she's saying to her pro-choice supporters, let's quit arguing that it's not something dying when we abort. Let's stop that. As soon as you do that, you're engaging in an ignorant argument. Uh, The words she said are self-delusion, fibs, and evasions. So from a pro-choice leader, um, we're we're, we're hearing that. Like, that's not the argument anymore. The living organism inside the mother's womb is alive, and it's, in fact, a little human being. Uh, One more quote from uh, David Boonin in his book, A Defense of Abortion. And this is probably the one that struck my heart the hardest. So this is David Boonin. He wrote a book entitled A Defense of Abortion, and he says this. Give me a second. He says, In the top drawer of my desk I keep a picture of my son. This picture was taken on September the 7th, 1993, 24 weeks before he was born. The sonogram image is murky. But it reveals clear enough a small head tilted back slightly and an arm raised up and bent, with the hand pointing back toward the face and a thumb extended out toward the mouth. There is no doubt in my mind that this picture, too, shows my son at a very early stage in his physical development. And there is no question that the position I defined in this book and tells that it would have been morally permissible to end his life at this point. Do you understand what he just said? He's talking about his real living son. A sonogram photo of his real living son sucking his thumb in the womb. Somebody he knows and presumably loves and cares for and saying... That even though that's true, it, is, it would have still been permissible for me to end his life at that point. Now, from a biological, a secular, even a pro-choice perspective, there's no reasonable doubt that life begins at conception. That, that argument is just about off the table, and it will be soon. I don't hear that much. Life begins at conception. But it still leaves the question, where does personhood begin? Right? Where, does, where do human rights begin? Where does human value become equal? And so let's, 
Let's go to Scripture now. And let's work through some things. So where does personhood begin? So really the first question we must ask is, what does it mean to be human being? Right? I mean, in order to figure out where personhood begins, what does it mean to be a person? How are people different from anything else created? What makes you a man or a woman, a human being, and not a dog or a gerbil or a fish or a tree or other living things on the earth? What sets you apart and causes God to see you as a human being or a person? So we're going to start in Genesis 1. This is the account of the creation. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27 is a summary account of the creation of human beings, man and woman. And it's a summary account where God overviews the purpose of human beings and and indicates what it is about us that's different from any other living thing here on earth. So in Genesis 1.26, we read this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now here's what's unique. That hasn't been spoken yet. This is day six of creation. Five days of creation. God has said at the end of each of those days, it is what? Good. At the end of creation, he will say what? It is very good when it's complete. But the first time that he says that he's creating something in his own image or likeness is here on day six. And then he says, let them, being man, human beings, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the, of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So why did God give dominion to human beings and not to the tiger or the elephant? Or the gopher. So in creating man, God said, I am setting you over in dominion over. He hasn't explained fully why yet, but he's basically laying out the food chain and a sense of hierarchy saying, human beings shall be where? At the top, having dominion over. Then he goes on to say, in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so not only is this the first place that phrase shows up in our image, it's said three times in two verses. So what sets human beings apart from anything else that's created that is living or not living is that we bear the image of God. There's something in you that a dog doesn't have that bears the image of God. There's something different about you that sets you apart from a blade of grass in your front yard, a tree growing in your backyard a fish that's out here in our pond, a bird flying through the air, something sets you apart. And what God says is this, here's how you'll know because it'll be the image, my very image on you. Something different. Human beings have a different sense of cognitive reasoning. We have the ability to think through things. We don't just react. When we react, we get in trouble, don't we? It's when we stop and think through things. We engage in cognitive processing and reasoning. We think about possible outcomes. We think about moral choices. When was the last time you saw a dog stop his friend and say, wait a second. Now, if you do that, you're going to feel really bad about it. You're really going to hurt the cat's feelings. Don't go chase the cat. This cat is self-conscious, has kind of a self-esteem issue. Quit being a bully. Right? It just doesn't happen, right? Dogs don't have that ability. Now, whether or not we choose to engage in it or not is a different question, but we have the ability for moral, right? Weighing things out morally, moral reasoning, and thinking through things. It sets us apart. That is part of our God bearing, our God image. God does that, He does it perfectly. He's righteous, He's a God of justice. 
He discerns with perfect wisdom. We bear his image when we engage in that ability as human beings. It sets us apart. Now, what's interesting is this. If you continue reading in Genesis, in Genesis 5, 1 through 3, there is an amazing connection to what we just read. So, overview. Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. Day 6, human beings are created in his image. Creation is very good. Genesis 2, what we get is the detailed version of day 6. So it's not in chronological order. The author goes back and says, let me tell you a little bit more about how day 6 unfolded, the creation of man and woman. You get the detailed version. Then Genesis 3, you have the fall in the garden. Disobedience, right, to God now enters into the world. Shame, death, or sin, death, shame, rebellion, hiding. Before chapter 3 ends, Adam and Eve are hiding from God, and they're hiding from each other. Okay? This is the, the curse of death on humanity. Four enters the story of Cain and Abel. The story picks up with murder. Interesting. And then it unfolds in chapter 5, and we begin to get a lineage from Adam and Eve all the way to Noah, and then all the way to Abraham by chapter 12. So that's what's unfolding in Genesis 1 through 12, this tracking the lineage of man from Adam and Eve all the way to Abraham. Look at what we find in Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3. Now we get this introduction. This is the book of the generations of who? Adam. We're already in chapter 5. The author stops, and now he's going to recount the generations from Adam forward. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So he's not just going to go through biology and say, well, Adam and Eve had kids, and their kids were such and such, and they had kids and such and such. He reminds us that Adam first was created with this God-like characteristic being created in the likeness of God. Then verse 2, male and female, he created them. Sounds familiar. And he blessed them and named them man, mankind, when he created them. He set them apart. Verse 3, look at this. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and he named him Seth. So what God did in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, creating Adam and Eve, now has been passed on to the next generation. What is that? The image of God. The thing that makes human beings different, set apart, personhood. And so for me, the question, I'll just throw this out there, the question isn't where life begins. Life, if you're alive here today, life has been unbroken from Adam and Eve all the way to you. At the moment somebody dies, lineage stops. And if they already had children, they've passed on life and life continues. Even sperm and, and eggs that aren't necessarily fully human being yet because they only possess half the chromosomes, they're actually alive. They're organic. They're living. They come together and respond to one another. So life itself is an unbroken conduit. Here's how I would say it. Where does life begin? Life doesn't begin at conception. Life travels forward through time as an unbroken conduit passed along from parent to child from the beginning of creation until now. There is no place in your lineage where death happened before life was passed on to you. Your parents may be deceased now, but you came before they deceased. Had to have. Right? The lineage stops and life ceases to go forward. Now, interesting. I want to read a quote from uh, 
from somebody who is a pro-choice person. This is Carl Sagan. He was actually an American astronomer, so a scientist, uh, a pretty smart guy. Uh, he and his wife, uh, Anne, they wrote an article for Parade Magazine, and, and I just want to read his perspective on what I just said. And this is from a secular worldview, a pro-choice worldview, not Christian, not biblical. Here's what Sagan says. Despite many claims to the contrary, life does not begin at conception. It is an unbroken chain that stretches back nearly to the origin of the earth, 4.6 billion years ago. Nor does human life begin at conception. It is an un- I'm sorry, I just repeated myself. Nor does human life begin at conception. It is an unbroken chain dating back to the origin of our species tens of hundreds of thousands of years ago. Is the quote correct up there? So you're tracking with me? Okay, sorry about that. Every human sperm and egg is, beyond a shadow of a doubt, alive. They are not human beings, of course. A sperm and an unfertilized egg jointly comprise the full genetic blueprint for a human being. To date, murder uniquely applies to killing human beings. Therefore, the question of when personhood, or if we like, ensoulment, meaning the point you get your soul, So therefore, the question of when personhood arises is key to the abortion debate. When does the fetus become human? When do distinct and characteristic human qualities emerge? And what we just read from Genesis 5 is that Adam passed that on to Seth. It's an unbroken conduit, an unbroken chain. So at the moment that Seth, Adam and Eve's child son, was conceived, the image of God was on that zygote. He possessed the full DNA, everything that was necessary, right, to not just live outside the womb, but to carry the image of God forward. Reproductive, like already gender was determined. The the organs for reproduction were there. If If it was a female, all the genetic code to create all the eggs that would carry life forward were there. At that moment, Adam passed on the image of God to his son Seth. It's an unbroken chain. I'm going to go to Psalm 139 and camp out here for, for a few minutes. If you want to go ahead and turn there, I encourage you to do that. It's a beautiful psalm and, uh, and very enlightening into this beginning of personhood from a biblical perspective. The wording probably will be familiar. Um, it's, it's not an uncommon passage. Starting in verse 13 of Psalm 139, We'll read 13 through 16. The psalmist writes to God, For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I am fearfully and wonderfully what? Made. You knit me together. Who's the knitter? Who's the maker here in this passage? 
God is the maker and the knitter. God is. I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. I didn't just fearfully and wonderfully happen. Right? I'm not just the results of being fearfully and wonderfully set in motion at the beginning of time, biological processes that unfolded to give me personhood. I was made. So if we believe what was written, God was involved in creating you. And if you, if you read the wording here, really it, it dates back to even before conception. From the depths of the earth is this idea that from... Ephesians 1, the New Testament, that even your salvation is rooted in the creation of heavens and of the heavens and the earth. Meaning what? However your theology lands, you were on God's mind before you were conceived. You were. God didn't then just take a chance. He was in the process of making you, you. I was fearfully and wonderfully Made. And then the psalmist responds. I want to look at his response. I praise you. So as the psalmist thinks about that truth, God, I was fearfully and wonderfully made by you. Yeah, I look a little bit like my dad. I act a little bit like my mom. But ultimately, God, you are the one knitting me and making me. And so I praise you. Now, this is true of anything in creation, that create, the creation of God is to be marveled upon. This morning I was taking my youngest son, Calvin, to school, and the sun is coming up later and later, so we actually got to watch the sun rise, even though we know the earth is spinning, the sun's not really rising. It looks like it's just coming up from the horizon, doesn't it? And so um, we, uh, just a few weeks ago when we were making the route, it was up and glowing orange, and Calvin was like, oh, look, Dad, the sun is pretty. Didn't Jesus do a good job? Yeah, he did. It's awesome. And today, I caught it before he did, just cresting the horizon. I said, oh, look, Calvin, look right there. There's the sun coming up. And as we drove to school, because of where we changed elevation, I mean, it literally looked like the sun was just coming up. So, so how does the believer respond to that? That's part of God's creation, right? We're to marvel at it. We're to, we're to, we're to slip into worship and say, wow, I could never do that. I couldn't have dreamed it up, much less put it in motion and make it happen. Right? And that's just, that's just the earth spinning, and there's this solid glowing object out there, and it moves us right, to, to worship. It overwhelms us to think, how, how do you do that? How do you set these little balls of dirt and matter in the universe and spin them and create gravity in and, 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 and a way that sustains life on one of them? How do you do that? But the psalmist isn't talking about the earth. He's actually talking about himself here. He's saying, as I think about myself, I look at my fingers and my toes, and, and I think about how my body works, and like, I marvel. I marvel. I praise you, God. I praise you. Now, worship is the adoration and the embracing of what God is made. It's saying, God, you did a good job. That's a light way to put it, right? This is good. It's very good. Now, when we think about it in those terms, if that's what God is doing in the womb, making something that's very good, it's his work, he's knitting it together, then Abortion is the opposite of embracing in that moment, right? Embracing it is marveling at it. I don't understand it. Yeah, it looks kind of funny at eight weeks old, but it's got a heartbeat. Like, how does that work? How do you go from being one cell to millions of cells, right? We should marvel at that. And the psalmist is just overwhelmed with himself in a way where God's the one receiving the glory. 
And so he worships. So then indirectly, if that's true, if we believe that, okay? I don't know where everybody stands. If you believe that then, aborting a baby is saying to God, I don't agree with what you're doing. If God's the knitter in the womb, the one working, then indirectly or even directly you're saying, I don't agree, God, with what you're doing inside my womb or another person's womb. I don't agree with what you're doing. Or it might be saying this, I don't agree with the timing or the result of what you're creating. So if you believe this passage, abortion is saying, God, I don't agree with what you're doing right now. It may be a timing issue. All that We'll talk about those sorts of things as we move forward. But then he goes on to say, Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And the idea here from, is, is, is continued worship, but a sense of reverence has set in. What God creates is to be revered. We have a human soul right here marveling at being a human soul. In, in a sense of reverence, a sense of probably feeling the weight of how small he is at this moment. You ever had that moment? You realized either how fragile your life is. I know you guys haven't. You're still bulletproof and right, you're not there yet. But something happens, we call it midlife crisis, when all of a sudden we become acutely aware of our humanity and our frailty and the fact that this thing ain't, it ain't getting any younger. Right? And there's a sense of, whoa, I feel the gravity of what's happening. The psalmist is feeling the gravity at some point in his life, and he's, he's, he's erupting in worship. He's going, this thing is bigger than me. I couldn't put it into motion. I don't know fully how it works. And, and here's the thing. I mean, that's, I mean, we're looking at possibly 3,000 years ago. Today, with today's science, we still marvel, don't we? We still don't fully know how it works. We look at the brain as an organ and we understand how you know, it, synapses happen and, 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 and connections happen within the brain. But fully, we don't understand how the brain works in terms of moral choices, right? reasoning, the ability to think through and process outcomes, and ultimately to bear the image of God. Because ultimately, it's not the organs that bear the image of God, it's the personhood. And we marvel at it today, we should in reverence and wonder. We should look at each other and and, and realize nobody else can do what we can do. Nothing else can do what we can do. Again, animals, horses don't stand next to one another and marvel at one another, right? They They don't erupt in worship when they look at one another and go, whoa, you're a great idea. How do you, how do you eat grass and drink water and grow? How does that work? Right? They don't, like their, their attraction to one another is instinctive. They aren't drawn to one another's character. One horse doesn't look across the fence at another horse and go, well, you've got a lot of integrity. You're the kind of horse I want to raise children with. Right? That's, they operate by instinct, right? They just look at it and go, I want that. Which is... That's the way some human beings operate too. But here's the thing. We have the ability to not do that. We have the ability to look at one another and see character, to see personhood, to see identity beyond instinct, right? To develop friendships and community, to set up government and organization and and, and, and a sense of like leadership and following and, and, and you and I can get together and collaborate on things, right? We may not agree on the color of that lady's dress in that picture, 
Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Right? But we can discuss it. We can argue about it, right? If you don't know what we're talking about, Google the dress that is the two different colors or whatever. And just look at it. And then discuss it with somebody, and you're going to disagree on what color it is. It's just mind-boggling. Show it to your dog and see what happens. You're going to lick it, right? You're going to try to eat it. We are wonderfully, fearfully made. Some other things that the psalmist mentions here. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of, I expect him to say, my mother's womb, the earth. So even before the mother's womb, God is intricately thinking and designing you. My mind can't wrap around that. I don't understand that. I can choose to believe it, but I can't fully understand how that works. So the psalmist isn't starting at conception saying, it was awesome when my dad and my mom got together and put this thing in motion. Then you got involved, God, and started putting me together. He's saying, you intricately wove me, not in the secret of my mother's womb, but in the depths of the earth. In the New Testament, it's often referred to as the foundations of the earth. He goes on to say, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Now this is, again, this is third world 3,000 years ago, perspective. He doesn't know what's in the womb. He doesn't know at what stage it develops eyelids and all those sorts of things. He just, it's, an, it's unformed. He's an unformed substance. But even, even that, God is involved with. You saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every day. Every day after birth, I'm reading every day. From, from even before birth, every day is written about. Every day. Now, let's look at a, a couple of examples where we see personhood in the womb. Okay? Personhood in the womb. We're going to start with, uh, let's start with uh, Luke chapter 1. It's the beginning of Luke's gospel. If you're not sure at this point in the story, um, Mary's sister Elizabeth is pregnant with who would become John the Baptist, one who was prophesied about in the Old Testament who would come before Jesus and prepare the way. So Elizabeth is married with John the Baptist, and now Mary is pregnant with baby Jesus. So this is Luke chapter 1. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste until the hill country. This is verse 39, Luke 1, 39. Let me start over. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, as she looked at Mary, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So we've got two pregnant women here, connecting in a way that pregnant women just connect. I don't get it. 
But something happens inside of Elizabeth's womb when Mary walks in, the baby inside of her, when, when, she, when she walks into the room and heard the greeting of Mary. Now, we know biologically babies can hear sound and respond to sound and can even cover their ears when it gets loud. But this little baby is responding. Now, this is supernatural. I get it. But we have this little person inside the womb of Elizabeth responding and leaping at the sound of Mary's voice. Ultimately, at the identity of Jesus being in the womb of Mary. Now you go, well, that's John the Baptist and Jesus. Like, we expect supernatural things to happen there. I mean, let's just be honest. The Holy Spirit is involved in conceiving, right, with Mary, baby Jesus. So we expect supernatural things to happen. So we go to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 1, 5 says this. Or actually, God is saying to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I what? Knew you. Knew who? You. What do you mean you knew me? I knew your person. I knew your soul. The you that is a you that's different from any other animal or living thing on earth. That part of you. I knew you before I formed you in the womb. And before you were born, I consecrated you. That means set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. There's no doubt if you believe that passage, God is saying to Jeremiah, what? I planned you, your conception, before you even were a zygote in your mother's womb, I knew you. I knew all about you, your personality, your physical traits. I knew your purpose here on earth. Now we look at that and go, well, he's a prophet, right? He's a special guy. So, of course, God's involved in that. But how about all the rest of us human beings who aren't prophets writing down Scripture? So I go back to Psalm 139 that we just read, this beautiful passage applying, I believe, to any human being here on earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me. If you believe the Bible, that me is you. That's to you. God is expressing this to you, saying this should be your perspective too. You should see yourself as fearfully and wonderfully made. When you stop for just a moment to, to realize how amazing and intricate you are as a human being and the fact that you're set apart because you bear my image, that should cause your heart and soul to erupt in worship and reverence. It should catch you off guard. Nobody else or nothing else that is created on earth can do that. The oak tree can't do it. The dog can't do it. The elephant can't do it. You can. That's about you and me. It's interesting here because one of the big parts of the debate has to do with the womb belonging to the mom, right? It's a woman's body. It's a large part of the debate that, that you shouldn't tell a woman what to do with her body. And so all we're looking at so far is the little creature inside her body, whether or not it's alive and whether or not it's a human being. So from a biological standpoint, clearly alive. From a biblical standpoint, clearly alive. From a biblical standpoint, has personhood even before conception. So surely has it at conception. Let's talk about the mother's womb for just a moment. If what we just read in the Bible is true, and I really just want to speak to the ladies for just a minute. I want the men to overhear me, especially men who um, 
either your wife is yet to be pregnant or you're is pregnant right now, or young men who aren't married yet, one day you may have a wife. If you keep your act together, God will bless you with a wife, and you'll have a pregnant wife potentially, and you're going to need to walk with her. Patience and love and help her get through the process of being pregnant. Those of you who've been pregnant, there's a spectrum. One to ten from easy to hard, and one is incredibly difficult, and ten is I don't know if I'm going to make it. Right? So even the best pregnancies... I have one of my best friends, his wife loves being pregnant. She feels better than she feels any other time. Yet, it's still not easy. Right? There's nothing about being pregnant that is easy. Some are harder than others. Here's what I want to say to the ladies in the room, and I want the men to overhear me. God has given you a womb, and it is a very sacred place. And you're right, it is your body. The womb, whether you're 12 years old or 70 years old, it is a very sacred place according to the Bible. Very sacred. This is the only safe place on earth for human life to develop. It is. Your womb. And it's a gift. It isn't an easy gift. It involves sacrifice. It involves allowing your body to be stretched and abused, kicked from the inside. It involves being completely inconvenienced for at least nine months. And if you choose to keep the baby for another 18 years, and then it's even debatable on whether or not it ends there. But you're saying for the next nine months, I'm going to allow my body to be inconvenienced, abused, stretched. It means dealing with hormonal imbalance. Right, men? It means subjecting yourself to the complications and the potential medical conditions that could happen. And listen, ladies, it could even cost you your life. Your womb, that sacred place inside of you, that very special gift could even cost you your life. But what a magnificent role women play among God's creation. Your womb is the only place on earth that this can happen. Your body is the only vessel on earth that is gentle enough, healthy enough, sanitary enough, intricate enough to carry the most fragile version of the image of God. Your womb is a gift. And it's not always a convenient gift. It's not always an easy gift. There's some women in this church who've been through horrific pregnancies. I mean, nonstop throwing up for the first four, four and a half, five months. And then decide to do it again. Some of you were those women. Some of you know those women. But what the Bible has just said to every woman in the room, you're right, it is your womb. It's your body. And it's a very sacred place. It's a very sacred place that you've been given.
I want to read for you some statistics, okay? This is just data, and depending on where you go to get your data, it's going to vary. So I tried to take some averages, okay? So I'm not citing any websites here. I went to multiple places looking for these numbers, and so hopefully, I mean, they're fairly close. So let me just give you some abortion statistics so you can kind of wrap your mind around what this looks like right now. January 22, 1973 was the famous Roe v. Wade um, Supreme Court decision. Uh, there was another one simultaneously happening on the same day, but this is the one that um, gets the most attention. And so before this moment, the abortions that took place were illegal. So I was born in 1976. I'm almost 20. So she had an abortion four years before I was born, her first pregnancy when she was 16. So four years before that. So that would have been 1972. And so my mom's I uh, got pregnant at 16, lived in the panhandle of Texas. Um, my grandparents, I've never heard any reasoning behind it for whatever reason, felt like abortion was the best choice. They loaded my, as soon as they found out, they loaded my mom up in a car, drove across the state line into New Mexico to a doctor who would perform an abortion, performed the abortion and came back the exact same day and never spoke of it again. Until my mom was in her 40s, she did not break the silence of that moment. And as, as a Christian, as a human being, she couldn't hold it in any longer. And the first time she shared it with anybody was with me, her second child, to let me know what had taken place. And the second time she mentioned it was before our church. She shared it in front of everybody. But what happened with Roe v. Wade is it became legal. And so now you have legal abortions, and so this is where... You began charting out how many are taking place. And the numbers skyrocket, as you can imagine, because it was happened illegally already. Now they're accounting for it. By 1996, just some stats here from 96, 1.36 million abortions. Now these are U.S. numbers, by the way, not worldwide. Uh, 2000, 1.31 million. 2002, 1.29 million. Then, then watch what happens. There's a trend here. 2011. 1.06 million, 2012, 1.02 million, 2013, less than a million. You see a trend happening here, right? From 1973 through 2011 alone, the FDC recorded 53 million legal abortions occurring in the U.S. So 53 million. Fifty-three million. If you're from the pro-choice side, human beings, living things, were put to death. From a biblical perspective, 53 million image bearers were put to death. I think you've got all these numbers up there, Brian. Um, 50% of pregnancies among American women are unintended. Even within Christianity, just happened this last Sunday. We got an announcement, a surprise from one of our families here, who already has three children, and thought, "Well, this is we're probably done." Certainly didn't expect it to happen again right away. Boom! There's a fourth one, unintended. Doesn't mean that they're not embracing it, fearfully and wonderfully made. This is awesome, but unintended pregnancies happen. Okay, it happens. Forty percent of unintended pregnancies are aborted, which means that roughly. 19 to 21%, depending on which numbers you look at, of all U.S. pregnancies end in abortion. 
Are you aware? Did that catch you off guard? It did me. I'm thinking 1%, 2%, very rare. What do we know about it? This number is staggering, and I still have not fully believed it. 25 to 33% of American women, that's a quarter to a third of American women, will have an abortion at some point in their life. These are government-recorded numbers. So I looked into the reasons why women get abortions, and here's the reasons why women, at least this is what they say, of the women who get abortions who are willing to, to, to express why, they say, 75% say that having a baby would interfere with work, school, or other responsibilities. 75% say that they cannot afford a child. 50% say they do not want to be a single parent or are having problems with the husband or partner. 12% of the women uh, included a physical problem with their health among the reasons for having an abortion, and then 1%. It's actually less than 1%. Let's say 1% reported that they were the survivors of rape. Okay, and that tends to be one of the big leverages that comes up. Well, what about rape or incest? And so just kind of want to make sure we have the right perspective here. A majority of the women who have abortions are having abortions based on convenience. That's my interpretation of what we just read. Saying that right now is not a good time. I wasn't planning on it. It's going to be expensive. I've got things going on like school and work, and I just don't have time for this right now. Over the last two years, on average in the U.S., if you look at 2013 and 14, because the 15 numbers aren't in yet, we average out 6.7 million pregnancies on average right now. It fluctuates a little bit, somewhere right in there. That's how many women get pregnant in the U.S. every year. 50% of U.S. pregnancies are unintended, as we t- talked about. So that's 3.3 million unintended pregnancies. 66% of the U.S. pregnancies result in live births. That's two-thirds of them. Approximately 4 million. It's over 4 million. So approximately two-thirds of the women who get pregnant in the U.S. will deliver live babies. So that leaves a third to, to be divided between Um, miscarriage and and abortion. Twenty percent of those, actually at least 44 percent, so 20 percent of those end in miscarriage and then 20 to 21 percent end in abortions, which is approximately 1.2 million per year. Now we just saw that the numbers are going down, so you can see the discrepancy. Somewhere right below a million to somewhere right over a million abortions here in the U.S., it's hard to track other countries. Some countries like China, other, uh, under the banner of population control, um, promote abortion a little more heavily. Um, other countries restrict it a little more heavily than the U.S., so we're not necessarily reflective of the globe. That's just what's happening here within our country. Now, so let's just go off the number of million pregnancies to be aborted in this year, 2015, plus or minus then according to what we just read in the Bible, 500,000, because it's about 50-50, it's about 49.5, 50.5 men and women, 500,000 little boys' lives will be terminated this year. Little image bearers, 
potential husbands, dads, contributors to societies, but bigger than that, potential worshipers. 500,000 little boys. And that leaves 500,000 little girls. So here's, here's where the debate kind of lands for me. And I get frustrated. I'll just be honest. I get frustrated with both sides. Because see, what I hear from, from, let's just say the pro-life side, is the drum and the rally for the life of the baby. And, and it needs to be, the life of the baby needs to be rallied for, but not at the expense of the mother. And so indirectly what happens from some of the pro-life voices is that the value of the mother, the mother is devalued, right, in the name of valuing the baby. In order, making the point that the, the baby inside of you is valuable, it's a viable, it's, it's a real human being, then what happens if we're not careful, indirectly, we, we devalue the woman, which then causes the other side to beat the drum even louder. It's her body. Quit taking her rights. Quit devaluing this lady, this human being. And then what happens indirectly in rallying that cry is what? The baby becomes devalued. And you see this vicious cycle. And you read about it in the media and you see people going back and forth. This breaks my heart. Why? Because, I mean, I, I have two boys and I care about children. And like, I mean, it breaks my heart to think about what's taking place in abortion clinics. But I, but I love women too. Like I love I mean, ladies or image bearers. And so here's the hard moral question. Which is worth more? Which has more value? Which has more rights? And so I would say this to every person in the room, listening or on the podcast. I'm challenging you to really take a step back and make sure you haven't devalued one in order to elevate the value of the other. They both matter. They're both image bearers. Every woman who has, is pregnant and considering abortion is also an image bearer of the Most High God. And she is carrying a little image bearer in her, inside of her, potentially a little girl, right, who will also grow up to be a little image bearer, to a, a, an image bearer of the Most High God. They both matter. They both matter. So here's just some questions for us to think about. Does one human life ever have more rights or value than another? In the image of God. Does rape give a mother more human value than her child? Does incest give a mother more human value than her child? Does a strong woman outside the womb have more value than a tiny woman inside the womb? These are just questions I'm leaving you with, okay? Because for me, it boils down to these questions here. It's alive. It's a human being, biologically, genetically, and biblically. It bears the imprint and the image of the Most High God. Because we get into some moral dilemmas, don't we? 
What happens if the mom's life becomes in jeopardy? What happens if it's a situation of rape? What, what do we do in these situations? And we have to ask these questions. Are you and I willing to answer those questions? So here's what I want to do. I want to show you a, a testimony video. It's about two minutes long um, from a believer. It's a Christian perspective, and, and just let you know that. Um, a, a lady who, through simply reading the Psalms, um, flip sides from pro-choice to pro-life, and she explains why, and I think she does a marvelous job of sharing um, how God used that psalm to change her heart. I want you to hear that. Give us a chance to get ready to ask some questions, because we're going to spend the rest of our time in Q&A here tonight. So, um, Brian, I know you've got the video ready to go. Um, do we need to give them instructions on texting first? Okay, so you've got that. If you just text your questions to, or email, Questions at srchurch.tv from your phone or your smart device. Brian's going to be sending those questions to me on my phone right here. I'm going to be doing my best to answer those um, as best I can. So be thinking about your questions. Let's watch this video, and then we'll, we'll come back to it. As a psalm singer, I can trace so many moments when singing a particular psalm, either at home, in my own private devotions, or in worship, has just um, um, offered me a gentle rebuke, um, or, or simply showed to me how condemned I, I am or I was. So, um, you know, I, I had been, at the time that the, that the Psalm 102 really affected me, I had been I had committed my life to Christ. I was worshiping in a, the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, but I still was a holdout on the subject of abortion. And, and I was was really swayed by, um, by the reality of um, child abuse. Um, I was also very persuaded by um, an experience in my own life where a beloved family member had um, given herself an abortion with the knitting needles that she then gave to me as a as a as a present later, um, and and she did that because she was in an abusive relationship and she could not she was she was in a dead end street and and I more than anything um, had committed my life at that point to really wanting women to have options you know that was part of what fueled my own feminist world and life view as well so. Um, so there we were singing Psalm 102, and there's a line in Psalm 102 that a people yet unborn will bless and magnify the Lord. And I sang those, and all of a sudden, I understood that the reason that abortion was a sin was because it denied people the opportunity to bless and magnify God. And in fact, in some ways, that's why murder is a sin. I mean, we all sort of know murder is a sin. We, we don't want to be murdered and we don't want to be murderers, but, but ultimately the reason that it is a sin is because it attacks the image of God in another human being and it denies them the opportunity to sing praises to the Lord who made them. And after I sang those words, I was just not the same ever since. All right, so um, I want to shift to um, some Q&A, and then after that, we'll, we'll land it with a few summary statements, and then we'll pray again. 
and uh, so that's where we're headed now. Um, Brian is up there tentatively. Whoa, I've already got texts coming in. So he's queuing them up for us. <laughs> I knew Pope Francis was going to come up tonight. Uh, any, anybody from a Catholic background? Any, besides Jason Martin? All right. Um, so I just called you out online. Can you edit that out? Uh, so what do you think about Pope Francis' decision to require priests to issue forgiveness for women who have had abortions? Um, that's a two-part question for me. Um, I mean, first of all, I don't believe that any human being has the right to issue forgiveness on behalf of God. Now, I'm, what I mean by that is we are conduits of God's forgiveness, but we don't get to decide who gets forgiven or not. So I just label myself as non-Catholic. Um, now, that being said, I think that it does reflect the heart of God. Um, uh, ladies, you need to hear me on this. Um, there is grace for abortion. There is immeasurable grace. And so I agree with the church's position that grace, because before this, grace was not extended, to my understanding, to those who had had abortions. And so I think this reflects the heart of God in any sin when we say, yes, forgiveness is available. Um, which leads me to the next question. If abortion is sin, what do you say to the woman who has made this decision? I shared with you earlier about my mom, and um, I have a, uh, even have a good friend um, from high school and beyond, uh, a, a girl, a female, who um, came to me at one point and confided to me that she had had an abortion and just, just wrought with shame and, and darkness and took everything she had to own it. And, and so I would say this, um, first of all, understand this, it is incredibly difficult, it seems to be, from the women I know, incredibly difficult to say it out loud and to share it. Um, first of all, before God, there's this sense of right, um, uh, feeling like God won't love me, God doesn't love me. Every event after that where something bad happens is interpreted that God's punishing me for what I did. And first and foremost, I want to say that that isn't true. Um, God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. He calls them out of hiding into the light. And, and he promises over and over again from cover to cover that where there is confession of sin, there is forgiveness and rich mercy and grace. And so first of all, I would say to that lady, she needs to hear, God has enough grace to forgive you. And then I would say the second part of that that's difficult, I think what I've observed is for women to admit that to other people is really difficult. And so I would say um, to that woman, um, you, you need to share it. And not with necessarily with everybody, maybe not in front of the whole church, maybe so, I don't know. But you need to find a place to tangibly believe God's grace by sharing that with another believer. And if you can't do it in your church, you need to find a church where you can. You need to find a community where you can own what happened in a way that you can be surrounded by love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and walked with. Somebody who knows the secret and still walks with you. And those are two really important things for any woman that if you are that woman or you have contact with that woman, she needs to know God wants to walk with you in mercy and God's people want to walk with you. And you need to find both of those elements in your life. Um, that's in a nutshell what I would probably say in addition to maybe some more things. Okay. 
So birth control. Actually, this is really a two-part question if we're going to deal with birth control. Um, so let me divide the question into two. Is using birth control sinful or wrong? Um, so, I mean, there's, there's room to believe then that um, in Christ we should never use birth control. Just let it happen what happens. And then there are those in evangelicalism and Christianity who would say, you know, birth control can be um, part of our reasonable stewardship of life. Both arguments, you know, go at each other all the time. Um, I would say this, ladies, I'll say this. Um, you should look into your birth control. You should know, at least. You should know what your birth control does or doesn't do. You might be surprised. Um, I can speak personally. You know, um, my, my wife is on birth control, um, and primarily because of um, endometriosis and, and cysts and things that are physically happening to her body when she's not on birth control. I'm not saying that we wouldn't be for other reasons, but that's why. But we were surprised when we looked into it, and this question came up for us morally as a family, that some birth controls in the life of the zygote and others prevent it. And so we land on the side of preventative, not ending the life. And so you really need to look into your birth control. There are tons of options. If you have a good doctor, he or she will share with you the biology behind how that works, and you need to ask. That's my suggestion to, to that birth control issue. Um, we have people in our church who don't believe in birth control at all, and some who do, but I would say for everybody, at least know what's happening in your body, in your sacred womb, ladies. Um, I don't know if, I, I know I didn't thoroughly answer that all the way, but that's where I'm going to stop. What about situations of, of rape? I, I fully expect that to be a question that we come up with. I started to go ahead and, and just get the stories that I could find online of men and women who, um, whose mothers had been raped, and yet they chose to not abort and bring babies into the world, whether they gave them up for adoption or kept them as their own. There's some remarkable stories. And, but the tendency is to gravitate towards the ones that became heroes and to say, see, if, if this mother had aborted this child when she was raped, this person wouldn't become a hero. But even in doing that, we're kind of elevating the value of the person to justify not having it. I would say just the fact that it's a human being, right, that alone needs to be justification or not, whether they become heroes in society or not, whether they rise up as presidents or whatever or not, it's either right or, or wrong. And so I would say to the woman who has been raped, first of all, there needs to be a lot of soul care for that lady. Regardless of what happens inside her womb, she has been marred and, and, and I don't want to use the word damaged, but temporarily damaged. So it's not beyond God's ability to redeem, but it, there is a feeling of being damaged, not physically, but in the depths of the soul. Um, and that's the best way I can describe it. I know that there may be men and women in here who've both been raped, but we're talking about women. And if you've been sexually abused or raped, you could describe what I just tried to describe a, a more accurately, but, the, but you get what I'm trying to get at. The pain that you feel is beyond physical pain. It's a pain that includes even a sense of shame and darkness. Like Women who've been raped oftentimes feel like, how was this my fault? You know, why was it, what did I do wrong? All these sorts of things, which are not part of the equation. It's just what happens. Um, and so, I, First of all, soul care for that woman. She is valued. She is a, a daughter of the Most High God, and she bears the image of God. And, and feeling the impact of that rape can mar that in her perspective, that image of God. And that needs to be completely restored by Jesus Christ. And so then from there, gently, in time, I want to spend time walking through biblical counsel on, what, on the miracle that's happening inside of her. 
and that the sin of one man doesn't determine the identity of another. It doesn't. And so inside of her womb is a little, little future man or a little future woman. And regardless of whether or not they, they grow to being heroes in society or not, they have value, they have personhood, they have the image of God. And so bring that baby to full term inside of your sacred womb. And if you don't want to raise that child, give that child up, to, up for adoption. Allow somebody else to step in and finish the process of nurturing and raising that child. Now, I say all that knowing that I'm ask, I would be asking a lot of a woman. A lot. But it boils down to the question of which life has more value. And it's either an image bearer of the Most High God or it's not growing inside of her womb. And so I, be, I believe it is. So I would encourage, again, soul care for the woman and then a gentle walking with and probably the whole way and then even after birth, walking with that woman, a firm commitment to walk with her um, for the long haul. Yeah, that's what I would think I would say or do. Um, any more come in? Um, let's do two more. Do you... Are there any more coming in? I'll just do these two more. Let's deal with, uh, um, you know, do aborted babies go to heaven? I think you would mix in there, do miscarried babies go to heaven and all those sorts of things. And um, I think what we've read so far in the scriptures, God is sovereignly proactive in creating image bearers and personhood and counting the days and lining it up in such a way before even conception that even if you're not, Calvinist, right, you, you, there's still room to say God seems like he has it in control. And so for these little babies who haven't heard and responded to the gospel, how do we know? Uh, we, I mean, I, I don't know. But I know that children matter to God. I know that Jesus exemplified that in his own example when the disciples considered the children an inconvenience and a nuisance, and Jesus rebuked the disciples and said, let the children come to me for the kingdom belongs to such as these. And then he said another place that unless you have the faith of a child, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. So we know that children matter to God. Um, I, would not, I would not say that just because the baby hasn't been born, automatically he doesn't get to go to heaven. I would probably land on the side of God's mercy and grace in the womb. Um, and that as a sovereign God, he knows the personal identity of that baby even before it was formed, because that's what the scriptures just said to me. So therefore, um, as a just and righteous God, he can save that baby, even if it hasn't heard and believed the gospel. Now, that's a very short answer to a much bigger topic. So feel free to talk to me more, um, you know, behind the scenes or later on. So the, other, the last question here. Um, okay, two good questions. I'll end with the one you just sent me, Brian, and we'll call it good there. So let me do the one right before that. Um, as a husband, what do you do if your wife, wife's life is threatened and the doctors recommend aborting the baby to save her life? Gosh. As a husband, what do you do? It's been really hard. On one hand, um, the way I read the scriptures, my wife has a higher place in my life in terms of priorities um, and love than my children. doesn't mean I love my children less, less. It's a call to love my wife more. And I should lead my home in such a way where my boys always know that. Mom comes first. Okay, 
Now, that's a prioritization of, of responsibility as a husband and dad. That is not a valuing of life. I can't imagine if I was faced with the decision of choosing between the life of my wife or one of my boys. So as a believer, what I would like to think that I would do in that moment is to, to trust God. And, and I don't, I mean, the phrases that come to mind are kind of like, let the cards fall where they may is a light phrase in that moment. But truly, let God's plan unfold and not make a decision to terminate one life to save the other. As soon as I do that, I'm devaluing one over the other. So that was asked of me, what would I do as a husband? I think in that moment, given the circumstances that I'm aware of that could be going on, preeclampsia, some kind of something going on, toxemia, something where the doctor's saying, if we don't abort this baby, your wife's going to die or could possibly die. Um, I'm going to be talking with her if she's coherent. We're going to be praying through this. But I think my ultimate answer is to trust God with life. If I truly believe he creates and sustains it, I need to trust it in his hands over mine or the opinion of a doctor. I'm just seeing, I'm just seeing the opinions of doctors get thwarted by the miraculous power of God too many times. So I'm going to have to trust God in that moment. It's a good question. So I'm glad this last question came in because I wanted to kind of share with you just some things. This last question is, what does Solid Rock Church do to fight <clears throat> the protection of the unborn? It's um, a good question. Um, formally, um, other than things like this tonight, right? We're we're not formally proactive. Now, informally, many of our people are proactive. I'm looking at some of them who are involved in some great organizations that care for babies and moms the same. Um, so let me just start there. I think I have a great deal of disdain. Even probably brokenness is a better word. For pro-life people who stand on biblical principles but not biblical methods. I don't encourage um, creating a poster board of a bloody fetus, grabbing a bullhorn, and going out in front of an abortion clinic and fighting the battle that way. I personally believe the moment you do that, you're taking the value of the baby seriously, but you're devaluing an image bearer of the Most High God. And at, at least you're using fear as a tactic to carry out what you believe to be biblical principles, and I don't endorse or condone that. So whatever way you get involved, it must have an equal balance of the two. So that being said, I think there are tons of great organizations you can get involved in on a formal level. Um, I'll just share the name of one I'm aware of, Grace House. Um, would you raise your hand, Jessica Lambiers, on our mission team? She, um, you work there, right? She works there along with uh, one of my best friend's wives, Jamie Wood, another one of my best friend's wives. Does Tammy still work there? Tammy Uri does not work there anymore. I know Brian Lamb, one of our very own staff members, volunteers on the, in the abstinence program. It's a, it's a full-fledged ministry, all-encompassing, from abused women um, to uh, women who are pregnant, women who are considering abortions. Um, my mom, I mentioned earlier, actually got involved in um, the counseling program there, and I don't know the formal names, but uh, part of their program is taking, you know, providing sonograms and information for moms, and then 
for a woman who's considering abortion, offering counseling from the perspective of somebody who has had an abortion. Um, and so my mom got involved in that um, about five years ago. She was involved for about a year. And some of you may know this story. A lady that she was counseling, I won't mention her name, uh, came to my mom. It was her first one-on-one counseling session. She shared her story um, and encouraged this lady to keep her child. And through a, a lot of prayer and even people in this church reaching out to this woman, in addition to my mom, she decided to keep that baby, brought the baby to full term. Many of you have been here for a while, don't even know it, but you've seen this mom and baby here on our campus and this beautiful life, this image bearer of God has been brought to full life. That's part of the, the ministry and services that Grace House offers. Um, Surrender the Secret. Uh, if you don't know about that, just Google it. Um, it's, a, it's a ministry helping women who've had abortions primarily come out of that shame and darkness into God's grace and mercy and love. And so there are organizations like that that I wholeheartedly encourage you to get involved in. Um, if you have, ever have a question about an organization and you want to know more about them, um, feel free to contact somebody on staff. We can look into it with you and for you and see if it'd be something, a way to get involved. But again, let me just reiterate this. Um, don't forsake the mom for the sake of the baby. And don't forsake the baby for the sake of the mom. They both have value and both bear the image of God. If you're a lady in our church or you know somebody, that, that a lady in our church, a girl in our church who has had an abortion, um, we, this community is a place, a safe place, for every human being to own every single sin, including abortion. And so... Um, I'm saying that on behalf of the elders, the staff, our church as a whole. There is a community here that wants to walk with you or that person. And we want to handle it delicately, with tenderness, a lot of soul care. But this is a place where that can be shared and forgiveness and grace will be extended um, as a conduit of what God is already extending. Um, All right. It's a good questions, um, a weighty conversation. Uh, again, I assume some of you come in here tonight already decided where you, where you land on the issue. Um, it's a short amount of time to cover such a topic, so I don't consider what we've covered tonight completely comprehensive in any way. Um, but, but I wanted to offer enough to you that you could be informed on the magnitude of what's going on, the reality of what's happening biologically, even some of the, the arguments and perspectives from both you know, obviously from the secular world, but from the pro-choice world. And then I wanted to offer to you a brief biblical counsel on God's perspective on life in the womb. And so hopefully you've received that tonight. Um, I want to end by praying for you, um, all of you image bearers, uh, men and women, future men and women, young men and women alike. I want to pray over us all. And tonight isn't just about do I condone or condemn abortion? It's a, ultimately, for me, it's about do you truly see life the way God sees it? Do you marvel at life? Do you see human beings as being fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God? So I want to pray for us all now. And, and then I'm going to hang around for a little bit longer for personal Q&A if you've got any other thoughts or questions or things you want to bring my way. So let's pray together, and we'll just, we'll dismiss. Um, first of all, Father, we want to, um, we want to thank you for um, the counsel of your word, that God, you speak into this topic for us, and while there may be many questions unanswered, we thank you for the questions that you have answered through your word. 
it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the full value of what it means to be an image bearer. But God, tonight, and in my heart, and hopefully in other hearts in the room, you've, you've enlightened us, you've enhanced, you've magnified the value of human life in such a way that we see that you have chosen to create us in a way that is set apart in purpose and set apart even in value from the rest of creation. And so, God, we marvel and we marvel at that. And, God, we also realize that many, many lives are affected by this topic. Many women are right now considering abortion as a choice. Many women who have already chosen to have abortion are hiding in the darkness and shame, and they're scared of what you think, and they're scared of what we think as a church. And Lord Jesus, we bring this before you. God, let us be a church that invites men and women out of the darkness and into the light of your grace and your mercy and your love. God, let us, let us be your hands and your feet and your heart. God, not just to women who've had abortion, but to men who have also been involved in making that decision. Father, we realize that there is a, a fierce political debate happening right now in our country. And, and so, God, I pray you would give us wisdom and discernment on how we should engage in that in a way that doesn't forsake the fact that we bear your image. It doesn't forsake the value of any human being. God, we, we lay this before you. Would you now work in each of our hearts individually? For those of us who've been either just complacent or ignorant or just not involved, um, me included, God, I, I want to pray for repentance, God, that you would quicken my heart to be more concerned about human life, that you would stir in me deep passion for your creation for your image that is born on the human soul. God, we leave it in your hands. We ask that you would now lead us individually and lead us as a church. And we pray, God, we pray. God, we pray. For whatever portion of those a million women who are thinking about it right now, God, that you would intervene. Intervene in a way. Let's the woman know how much you love her. While at the same time, revealing how much you love about that little human image-bearing life inside her sacred womb. We commit these things to you, Lord Jesus. Amen.